Okay, comrades. Um, well, I'm not going to um, try to assess uh, the whole of COP uh, 26 simply because it hasn't finished. Nonetheless, I think that um, we can come to some sort of um, interim uh, judgment pretty accurately. Um, first thing I would say is that what an enormous, absolutely gigantic uh, a conference uh, we are talking about. And um, yeah, we had all the stories of uh, Boris Johnson and obviously uh, Joe Biden jetting in, of course, not just with um, themselves, uh, but with hundreds of um, advisors and negotiators and uh, general hangers um, on. And that's true uh, with an awful, awful lot of um, delegations. So I think the figure I heard was something like 20,000. And I'm sort of somewhat perplexed if that is actually uh, necessary. And if only the number of um, participants was matched uh, by actual worthwhile uh, agreements. And um, here we come uh, to the rub because um, it's been uh, boasted about uh, that if the present round of uh, pledges was actually implemented, um, then uh, the world would uh, actually not meet uh, the um, 1.5 degrees centigrade maximum um, that they, they set, uh, but would actually go beyond that uh, towards um, 1.7. And of course, I've read, um, you know, um, figures uh, that say, well, no, um, if you actually look at what's been agreed, we're still on course for 2.7. Now, I haven't looked at um, uh, various scientists saying, well, this is what this means. And I think they've got sort of, what's the word, um, you know, computer models uh, that could actually give you uh, some sort of idea of what the climate's doing and what the weather would do. Um, under those um, circumstances. Suffice to say, uh, the danger is uh, that you flip from the present um, climate pattern into some other uh, climate uh, pattern. Um, and it's not guaranteed by any stretch um, in terms of um, where that um, uh, ends up. So clearly we're going towards a uh, very dangerous uh, territory. Okay, so as well as having the um, uh, 20,000 delegates and um, hangers on in terms of the official uh, conference, we've also got demonstrations in Britain, obviously Glasgow, 100,000 people reportedly turned up uh, to that demonstration, fantastic uh, turnout. Uh, but demonstrations in other parts of Britain and, and of course, across the world. And there's also um, under the banner, under the umbrella 
of uh, the COP um, coalition, a parallel uh, conference uh, uh, going on. Um, I have to say, having looked at the COP uh, coalition, it seems very um, top heavy with um, charities and um, faith groups and uh, all, all sorts of manner of uh, worthies. Uh, there are a few uh, left-wing organizations um, um, in there, uh, for example. I, I think they must have signed up to it before they changed their name. Uh, that's um, socialist resistance, which is now called anti-capitalist uh, resistance, uh, and also uh, the campaign uh, against climate change, which is the SWP's chosen uh, vehicle, which I have to say, if you actually look at its politics, it's pretty hard to actually describe it as uh, left wing. Uh, you could describe it as um, liberal or even radical, perhaps. Uh, left wing, I think, is, is stretching it. Uh, either way, uh, the point that I would make here is that uh, in terms of the protests um, in and around uh, the Glasgow uh, COP26, the problem precisely is that the left um, is lacking uh, as a, a serious force. Uh, as some sort of project, what the left should be, not just to build protests, but to actually provide an alternative government uh, because the left should be standing uh, for an alternative uh, system. And it, it's all very well uh, going around. And I thoroughly approve uh, of the slogan, uh, not climate change, but uh, system uh, change. But if you're gonna have a system change, uh, you need to have uh, a party project and you need to have uh, a government uh, a project. And that is where uh, the left is very much uh, lacking. And as a result of that, what you do, you, you create a vacuum and you, you create uh, the possibility uh, that this huge energy that we're seeing in, particularly, uh, in particular from young people uh, gets diverted uh, into potentially uh, uh, dangerous uh, territory. So I've, for example, written, not extensively, but at least raised the question uh, that it, it's quite, you know, quite uh, reasonable and quite understandable to argue that capitalism has got uh, uh, no ability uh, to actually manage uh, the ongoing crisis, let alone what's going to happen uh, in a few years. On the other hand, uh, they do live on uh, the same planet as us, and they might, in terms of the state, uh, come up with something, i.e. what I've uh, dubbed um, as climate uh, socialism, which is definitely not a prelude uh, to proletarian socialism. It should be seen as its extreme opposite uh, in the same way uh, that uh, the war socialism of the German high command in World War I uh, wasn't a prelude uh, to um, proletarian socialism. Uh, it was its opposite. It might actually, um, how should you put it, um, give way to proletarian socialism, but that's through revolution, not uh, evolution. And just, I just wanted to refer to the little picture that we used to um, 
uh, advertise, to flag uh, today's session uh, with the slogan uh, Beyond uh, Politics. And this is, of course, taken from the um, three uh, main um, slogans, statements, aims um, of um, Extinction uh, Rebellion. I mean, um, they actually do have a um, um, some sort of background uh, material to their uh, slogans. They're not simply slogans, but basically the slogans go, act now, uh, declare a uh, um, climate emergency, tell the truth. Um, and the third one um, is beyond politics. And if you read what they say under that, they, they basically declare that the time for petitions, the time for standing in elections, uh, the time for, you know, marching, um, that's over because it hasn't worked. And therefore what they're proposing is precisely a direct action, um, you know, of the sort uh, that we've seen in terms of blocking bridges and the sort that the um, Insulate Britain breakaway group is uh, doing around London on the M25 and other um, such um, um, uh, roadways, but also what they're proposing in terms of their beyond uh, politics um, slogan is this idea of a citizens assembly. Now we in Britain haven't got any experience really of citizens assemblies, but if you look at other countries, um, these are um, bodies that have a constitutional uh, status. And the, the, the only example that I actually know of to any extent um, is Ireland. And if we look at Ireland, when it was, um, you know, uh, debating uh, the whole question of um, abortion, uh, the political parties uh, represented in the Doyle basically shunted it sideways to a citizens uh, assembly. And the idea is that what you do is you get a statistically representative sample, uh, whatever the number happens to be, we'll call it 500 people. You have a statistically represented, representative 500 people and you sit them down and you present them uh, with the evidence from experts and um, um, other uh, interested uh, uh, parties they deliberate on the question and then present their conclusions to Parliament, which then goes on uh, to hold uh, a referendum. Now, for some people, when they look at uh, British politics as it's presently constituted, that might seem an advantage. And certainly if you look at Irish politics, here you are, not only did you have the mainstream parties, and I include Sinn Féin, uh, in that you actually had the, the left-wing parties equivocating around the whole question of uh, abortion, such a difficult issue was it, uh, that uh, they all welcomed um, uh, this being handed over to the Citizens' Assembly, who recommended uh, to lift the ban on uh, abortions, and lo and behold, you had a referendum, uh, and uh, it's now legal. Uh, in Ireland and the political parties could turn around and say, well, we support that, uh, but we haven't uh, committed any sin 
uh, against, uh, the, you know, the Holy Mother uh, Church and uh, the teachings of uh, the Catholic religion uh, and all the rest of it. Now, for some people, as I said, there you are, there's Ireland, which used to uh, ban abortion, along with lots of other um, regressive and reactionary, um, you know, um, the pieces of legislation taken from Christian or at least Catholic uh, teaching. And now look at Ireland. Um, you know, you've had uh, a gay uh, prime minister, you've got divorce, you've got abortion. Uh, what's to complain about that? Well, from a Marxist point of view, uh, we do complain, not over the question of abortion, but precisely over referendums and um, so-called uh, citizens' Uh, assemblies. Why? Because we actually favour class politics. We actually positively favour representative democracy. It's not that we are concerned about the Tory party, the Liberal party, Sinn Féin, uh, the Democrat party uh, in the United States, if you can call it uh, a party. Uh, we're not concerned uh, about that. What we're concerned about is the workers being formed uh, into a party. And what we want uh, is not uh, the politics of referendum, which tend to divide uh, the working class. Uh, what we want is party politics and the struggle to unite the working class as a class uh, that's capable of uh, governing. And that's the whole point about party politics from us. It's worthwhile noting historically uh, that uh, the modern parties uh, come into existence as membership parties, really in response to the rise of Marxist parties uh, uh, in Europe um, in the second half, really the um, last quarter, in fact, um, of the 19th uh, century. Uh, these parties become mass, uh, the working class becomes capable under those circumstances, uh, yes, of um, becoming uh, the governing party um, and therefore the working class becoming uh, the ruling uh, class. So from our point of view, uh, we can well understand uh, why people looking at the present party system in Britain or Ireland or anywhere for that matter want to go uh, for the... Um, shortcut, uh, but we think it's illusory precisely uh, because if you take climate change, can you really reduce it to a yes or no answer? And do you trust existing governments and bourgeois parties uh, to actually keep to their pledges? Because what we know uh, about the Paris Agreement, uh, which they signed up to um, in the aftermath uh, of um, 2015 is they actually haven't kept uh, to those targets. If they had, uh, then the world truly would be, yeah, on course uh, for keeping uh, temperature rise below 1.5. And instead of that, what we've seen is uh, CO2 and methane uh, emissions actually increase year by year and um, all the indicators are uh, that uh, that increase will continue. Hence, uh, the UN warning uh, about uh, temperatures actually reaching uh, 2.7 uh, 
uh, degrees with all the consequences uh, that that has in terms of uh, rising um, sea levels, changing weather patterns, um, uh, the destruction of existing um, agriculture, um, fires, floods, um, you name it. Okay. Um, also just wanted to comment on um, Greta Thornburg, because um, I, you know, I do find it quite interesting uh, when you look at uh, the bourgeois uh, media that they actually need um, to, how should it, individualize um, political movements. And I do find it very strange uh, that um, many people in those political movements um, also look uh, to individualize them. So all you need to do is look at the demonstrations uh, in Glasgow and elsewhere, and the number of placards, for example, with blah, blah, blah um, on it, or the number of uh, left-wing newspapers with blah, blah, blah um, headlines um, um, on it. I think tell you something also, you know, in terms of uh, Greta, the sort of pop star um, status uh, that uh, she's, uh, she's achieved. Um, well, you know, you cannot but help admire someone who uh, at the age of 15 had been struggling uh, to get her classmates to join some protest um, in terms of the climate outside uh, the Swedish parliament and having failed to do that says sod it i'm going to do it myself uh, but i have to question um, a political movement uh, that's looking to someone who's now what i don't know 20 um, 18 i don't know how old uh, she is either way someone who's uh, very young and would not put herself over and doesn't put herself over as an expert or as a, a politician so it, 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 it sort of, to me, sort of half, um, I don't know, uh, Joan of Arc uh, comes to mind, um, the Children's Crusades um, in the 13th uh, century. Um, I've got down, I wrote down who the leaders of that were. Uh, Nicholas of Cologne and um, Stephen of Cloyes. Um, and again, just doing a little bit of uh, reading on that and the tragic outcome of those uh, children's crusades. They actually were rejecting the militarism um, of um, you know, Western European feudalism and its uh, invasion and pillaging um, of uh, the East, you know, blessed, of course, by the, the Pope. Uh, they rejected the militarism and, and, and they thought, this is what the story says, uh, that they could march um, all the way to Jerusalem and convert uh, the Muslims to uh, the truth faith, to Christianity. And they thought uh, that if they reached the Mediterranean coast, uh, the waters would open up for them and they could walk um, all the way uh, there. As the story goes, uh, they reached the Mediterranean coast and then the ones that actually stayed true uh, to the crusade were then captured and sold off in the slave markets of um, uh, Tunis. 
um, a pretty grisly uh, fate. Um, but it's also the case that the Pope, um, having blessed the military uh, uh, crusade in the East, uh, then blesses uh, the, um, uh, the children's crusade, incorporates it uh, into the, um, you know, the papal uh, 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 doctrine. And the same, of course, happens uh, with Joan of Arc um, in terms of the uh, French uh, king, uh, that um, here you are, a peasant girl blessed by God uh, becomes uh, part of uh, the um, uh, fight by French feudalism. I use that as shorthand uh, to beat, quote, unquote, English feudalism. The reality was that they were both feudalists and their kingdoms, certainly when it came to the so, well, the English kings uh, straddled a great deal of France. Anyway, that one aside, um, you know, what, what I'm sort of thinking of is that um, it's, not, it's not surprising uh, when we look at the task that we have in front of us, uh, that people not only look for shortcuts in such things as um, uh, citizens' assemblies, but also look for shortcuts when they look around at the political leadership or the, the excuse for a political leadership that exists at the present time. And uh, don't choose Keir Starmer, well, what a surprise there, uh, but instead uh, opt uh, for Greta Thunberg, uh, some sort of innocent uh, talk, you know, talking uh, to power. And of course, we all sympathize with her condemnation of uh, COP26 as a greenwashing uh, exercise, it clearly uh, is. Uh, this is governments parading uh, the idea that they've got answers when clearly they are not coming up uh, with answers. And as I said, my fear is uh, it, sometime down the line, uh, they might start to come up with answers, uh, which means cuts in our living standards, cuts in our democratic rights, and some sort of authoritarian uh, system uh, of rule through, through such things as citizens' assemblies, which of course uh, are informed by science of who's choosing. One would guess of the government's uh, choosing. The, the, these things are um, easy uh, uh, to manipulate uh, just as present day public opinion uh, is easy. Uh, to manipulate. And just finally, um, on uh, uh, COP26, uh, just to note the um, agreement on um, deforestation that 100 countries signed up uh, for it, an awful lot of countries uh, therefore didn't. But just to look at uh, uh, Indonesia, which signed up to this agreement, and then almost instantly uh, withdrew. Uh, uh, from it. As you know, um, I think Indonesia must be about the third largest uh, source of, um, how should we put it, um, tropical forest. Uh, I would have thought, you know, the Amazon jungle, the Congo, and then um, Indonesia um, would, would be how it, how it goes. Either way, they uh, withdrew uh, from it. Now, in terms of um, uh, the pledges, as I said, that they've made already, um, it's clear that uh, global uh, temperatures uh, will continue uh, to um, uh, increase. Anyway, 
uh, moving on, just a quick uh, comment on Joe Biden's triumph in Washington. He's got a 1.75 trillion uh, dollar package uh, through the House of uh, Representatives. Um, this was much to his pleasure, a bipartisan uh, vote, uh, because we had six uh, leftish uh, Democrats vote against it. Um, and therefore, um, to get it passed, he relied on Republican votes, which meant paring it down, splitting uh, the infrastructure from the social uh, uh, program. Uh, but the point I would uh, emphasize is not only did we see um, what was, I think, originally a 2.5 or something like that trillion dollar package cut down uh, to 1.75 trillion, e either way, an awful lot of money. Uh, but um, it still has to go through uh, the Senate. And uh, as you know, in the Senate, it's a 50-50 split. And it's uh, the vice president uh, that exercises as a non-member uh, of uh, the Senate, therefore the casting vote. Now, how his package will go down there, uh, I don't know. Uh, either way, uh, what you can say is that with the latest election results in the United States, the chances of um, the Republicans um, playing easy and nice uh, with Biden, uh, I would guess uh, that the, ch the chances have actually decreased. In other words, the Republicans will be looking at uh, the midterm elections in 2022 and very much fancying their chances both to win a majority in the Senate, which doesn't take that much uh, uh, to win, uh, but also uh, in the House uh, of uh, Representatives and therefore put themselves on track uh, for uh, a crack, another crack at the presidency in 2024. And at least as things look at the present, um, there's at least a good chance of their candidate being uh, Donald Trump. And what I just wanted to raise here um, is a sort of a scratchy head uh, moment and just sort of think about things. Because if we go back to Trump uh, and his presidency, in my view, incorrectly, an awful lot of the left, but also um, um, members of the uh, leading members of the Democrat Party uh, in the United States were talking about Trump either being a fascist or opening the door uh, to fascism. And clearly that uh, talk uh, was confirmed uh, for these people in Trump's attempted self-coup, uh, which culminated um, in the invasion of uh, the Capitol on January the 6th. And, uh, you know, uh, we all know roughly uh, what the plan was. It wasn't that this mob would conquer state power. Uh, it's what it would do is provide backbone uh, for Pence uh, for saying that uh, um, X, Y and Z um, electors 
um, in terms of the Electoral College are disqualified, and therefore Donald Trump uh, wins. And in spite of the six million or whatever it is popular vote difference between the two, in spite of Biden having a majority in the Electoral College, um, you could uh, um, spin it uh, so that that majority uh, disappears in the Electoral uh, uh, College. What would then have happened? I haven't got a clue. Uh, I mean, my version of it was that the army or the CIA uh, would have acted, and that seems to have been confirmed um, from General Miley, um, who was talking about telling his uh, staff not to let the fascists uh, uh, in. Either way, you know, in terms of my mind, uh, if you have um, the Republicans uh, running Donald Trump, um, will the army act? Will the Democrats allow a Donald Trump um, a second presidency when they consider him, um, uh, uh, you know, either a fascist or someone, as I said, opening the door to fascism who attempted to carry out a coup, um, not only on uh, January the 6th, but clearly in the run-up to January the 6th by involving the army, the National Guard, uh, going for a whole series of um, uh, court cases and pressurizing uh, governors uh, in terms of, uh, you know, doing a rerun of the vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, if we look at the possibility of um, the how should I put it, uh, the constitution being overthrown, uh, we shouldn't just look at the Republican Party and its anti-democratic uh, tendencies. Uh, we should also look uh, at um, the Democrat Party and no doubt in the name of democracy, um, um, you could at least imagine some sort of uh, Democrat blessed army intervention, for example, um, if Trump uh, won by less than fair means a majority in the Electoral College, uh, but didn't win uh, a popular majority, uh, would they actually stand for that? I asked the question, I haven't got uh, an answer for it, but I think it is a question uh, that it is worthwhile um, asking. Just wanted to uh, deal with a couple of other um, things, having mentioned Greta Thornburg and uh, the um, COP uh, protests, just think it's worthwhile looking at um, British uh, universities uh, at the present time, in particular, uh, the whole question of uh, freedom of speech, because we have uh, Kathleen Stock uh, resigning, um, much less publicity. Um, for uh, David uh, Miller in Bristol, but we have various sections of the left uh, actually defending um, student demands uh, for, the for the sacking uh, of stock. We even have some sections of the left, I use the word left very much with uh, inverted uh, uh, commas when it comes to the Alliance for Workers' Liberty, saying that uh, we should uh, not defend uh, David Miller. Well, in my view, uh, I don't think either of these individuals have been guilty of intimidation. Um, clearly, 
uh, we're not dealing with the same issue, but we're dealing with a similar uh, issue uh, nonetheless. And it does strike me uh, that uh, what we're dealing with here is a culture uh, that is rejecting rational uh, debate and rejecting rational debate in favor of feeling and um, how she put it, um, an invented, um, how she put it, uh, vulnerability. Now I can well understand uh, that uh, if one was Jewish looking at the history of the 20th century, uh, I can well understand why uh, people would have a particular sensibility and loathing of uh, anti-Semitism. I well understand that. But what we're dealing with here in Britain today isn't actually anti-Semitism. It's the weaponization of charges of anti-Semitism against people who are not anti-Semitic, but who are anti-Zionist, uh, which is a political philosophy, uh, a world outlook, uh, which is embodied uh, in the state of um, uh, Israel, i.e. the project uh, that says uh, that Jews and Gentiles cannot live together, uh, that they're always going to be regarded as outsiders by Gentiles, and therefore they need their own country. And it just so happens that there are people living there, but what rights do they have uh, compared with um, uh, Jews who were offered this territory? So the Bible says, I don't know how many thousand years ago, uh, but you all know your uh, Bible uh, uh, stories. When it comes to the women's question and when it comes to trans uh, people, again, I well understand, um, you know, the sensitivity um, uh, of people uh, in that uh, situation in terms of their uh, mental state. I mean, it must be incredibly uh, difficult, um, let alone uh, in terms of uh, the verbal and uh, physical threats, uh, let alone actual attacks uh, that these people proportionately suffer. But what we're dealing with here, in my view, at least from what I've read, um, isn't someone who's uh, threatening, but someone who's questioning. And I would myself argue uh, that what is needed is rational uh, debate and rational debate should not be a threat. In the same way I put forward my argument against Zionism, a Zionist should be in a position of where they're able to argue with me and say that Jack Conrad doesn't know what he's talking about um, on the question of Zionism. And I'd be quite prepared uh, to debate the question out. Um, I have not got a hard and fast position um, on um, you know, um, trans uh, people. Uh, I haven't got a hard and fast position either on the radical feminists who criticize them. But I do think that there is room there of a rational debate. And I reject the idea uh, that trans people are threatened as trans people through the process of that rational uh, uh, debate. It would be as if as uh, an anti-Zionist, I felt threatened if someone who is a Zionist debated with me, um, uh, I wouldn't feel uh, threatened. Or for that matter, someone who is an anti-communist said, 
um, you lot are just um, mass murderers um, in the waiting uh, because uh, Marxism leads to the gulag, it leads to Pol Pot, it leads to Mao or whatever else uh, the argument um, is. We need um, argument, we need to have rational um, uh, argument. And just a, a sort of footnote on that question, I note that our friend um, on the left of the Labour Party, Graham Bash, um, who I think has been in the Labour Party for over 50 years, um, and he's been the editor of um, what used to be called um, Left Labour Briefing and is now Labour Briefing, has been expelled uh, from the Labour Party. What's his crime? His crime apparently is to sign a petition um, of uh, Labour against the witch hunt. And I think he signed this petition something like 15 months ago. So this is an example of um, retrogressive um, uh, justice, so to speak. Uh, as you know, law, uh, Labour Against the Witch Hunt, was banned uh, along with um, three other uh, organisations on the Labour left. They were prescribed. Um, Graham, before the organisation was prescribed, uh, actually put his signature uh, to... Uh, a law uh, petition. And on that basis, that's my understanding of it, he's been expelled um, from uh, the party. Um, to me, this is an example uh, precisely of the use of uh, the witch hunt. Note it throughout most of the witch hunt, uh, while we have all manner of uh, accusations about anti-Semitism and how the left is overrun by uh, anti-Semitism, most cases that I know of, uh, when push comes to shove, the Labour uh, machine doesn't actually expel people for anti-Semitism. It usually expels them uh, for bringing the party uh, into disrepute, um, which is a catch-all, um, because they actually uh, don't want uh, to fight out uh, the question of um, anti-Semitism. I note that our chair, for example, um, you know, in terms of his job, wasn't sacked, although there were charges, wasn't sacked uh, from his uh, job uh, because of anti-Semitism, um, but bringing the council uh, into disrepute. And of course, we all note uh, the latest court judgment uh, on that question. And we're waiting an apology, of course, um, from Hammersmith and Fulham Labour uh, Council for wrongly sacking uh, him and for unison, his union, uh, for refusing uh, to defend him uh, against an unjust uh, attack uh, by the council and an unjust attack uh, by the media, uh, um, um, both in terms of the electronic media, uh, but also uh, the print uh, media. What I wanted to do uh, in terms of the Graham case, maybe this is unfair, but I don't think it is. I note that when it comes to the court case of Claudia Webb, uh, the ex-Labour uh, MP who was found guilty, she's appealing um, of um, threatening uh, behaviour uh, towards a friend of her partner. Um, she's got a suspended uh, prison sentence. 
that amongst the witness uh, statements uh, to her good character, uh, we had uh, Jeremy Corbyn, we had John McDonnell and Diane Abbott uh, lining up uh, to support her. We haven't had the same solidarity extended uh, to victims of an obvious false uh, witch hunt. Now, I don't know. I mean, all I can say with uh, Claudia Webb, I'm not, I uh, wasn't at the trial. I wasn't on the jury. Uh, I don't know all the evidence. I've only read uh, the, you know, the mainstream reports. I don't know how her appeal uh, will go. Uh, either way, uh, why when it comes to people who are clearly, clearly uh, of good character, uh, you know, honest uh, socialists, such as Mark Wadsworth, Stan Keeble, Jackie Walker, Graham Bash, and the list goes on and on and on. Why wasn't that solidarity extended to them? And, you know, my suspicion is it's because Claudia wasn't charged with anti-Semitism. Uh, and what we had uh, is an act of solidarity uh, between MPs. Uh, in other words, that she was one of us, or she is uh, one of us. She's part of the campaign group uh, of MPs, therefore we stand with her. But note that these comrades did not stand, I say comrades, I'm gonna correct myself. Uh, these MPs did not stand with Chris, Chris Williams when he was stupidly and ridiculously and falsely uh, charged with um, um, anti-Semitism. Uh, okay, just moving on. Want to comment on the Owen Patterson fiasco, and it is a fiasco, but a revealing uh, fiasco. Uh, we had uh, Boris Johnson using his parliamentary majority uh, to defend a friend um, who'd been found guilty by a uh, committee of parliament uh, itself. Um, what did he, what was he meant to have done from what I understand? Um, uh, he got paid for lobbying and um, I think he was well rewarded, wasn't it? Something like 180,000 pounds uh, that he was in receipt of. Um, either way, I believe the chair, I read the statement of the chair of this committee saying, look, this guy clearly believes he's innocent, clearly believes he hasn't done anything wrong, but he's done something wrong. It's against the rules. But whether he recognizes it or not is not the point. Here you have uh, uh, a committee appointed, uh, um, you know, to look into these questions. Uh, the you know, Tory government doesn't like it, uh, so what they do is vote uh, to get rid of that committee and uh, put in place a more pliable uh, committee. And what was noticeable at the time, of course, is the number of Tories that voted against it and the number who suddenly threw a sickie and uh, didn't turn up to Parliament. Nevertheless, Johnson had enough and his, his whips would have told him that we've got enough, uh, Boris, uh, to see this through. He pushes it through and uh, almost straight away, we see a screeching halt and a rapid U-turn uh, and we see um, a resignation. Um, Owen uh, resigns uh, as a, a member uh, of uh, parliament. And um, again, Keir Starmer 
um, after an initial prevarication, basically following uh, the intervention of John Major, uh, announce it, announces it as an example of political uh, corruption. And you have to agree. Uh, all I would say is this is, um, you know, lifting a lid um, on something that's endemic in Westminster uh, and affects, you know, all uh, the major parties. Uh, it's just that it takes different forms. Um, you know, if we look at uh, ex-prime ministers, if we look at ex-ministers, how many of them are working uh, for big uh, corporations or foreign governments uh, in order to advise them and give them access uh, to uh, current uh, ministers and current uh, uh, top uh, civil uh, servants. Well, you ask the question of why are these people on uh, the boards and the answer is pretty, pretty obvious. Um, either way, the point I would make is that I don't think myself that this will affect things in the long term unless you get key sections of the media basically deciding that Boris Johnson needs to go and we need to get in the second 11. That's what happened. Uh, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember, uh, to John Major, um, him of the Back to Basics, him of uh, the uh, government that's covered in sleaze. Basically, it was the Murdoch media uh, that switched over to Tony Blair uh, that swung it. And uh, having won over uh, against uh, Neil Kinnock, uh, he went down, of course, to a crushing defeat uh, against uh, uh, Tony uh, Blair, who was, of course, a genius, wasn't he, in terms of his big idea of new labor, communitarianism, anyone remember that? And the third way, um, all very profound and uh, almost instantly forgettable pieces of um, uh, nonsense. So whether that happens to Boris Johnson remains an open question. I wouldn't simply assume uh, that the days of Boris Johnson are over. Uh, it's far too early uh, to say. We shouldn't certainly judge uh, by the headlines in this week's uh, paper. We need to see how things pan out, not least uh, with the whole Brexit thing, that he looks like he will be stoking up again um, after COP26 finishes. My guess would be uh, with the claim that uh, we were 5-1 down now it's 5-5 five, five and uh, one more push and we can sort of get their bullshit. That's my uh, guess. Okay, just uh, 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 again, another little um, footnote uh, after the um, Graham Bash and uh, him uh, being expelled um, from the Labour Party story, uh, just the news uh, of the Green Party. Now, the Green Party holds uh, a conference twice a year, policy-making conference twice a year. So not annual, uh, but bi-annual, meaning twice. And what they've decided um, is to adopt the I IHRA working definition of uh, anti-Semitism. That's something that previous conferences had rejected 
um, against the agitation and um, strenuous campaigning uh, of the Green Party's only MP, Caroline Lucas. And Caroline Lucas has got, I think, a completely undeserved reputation of um, somehow being uh, a left winger. Uh, to me, uh, if we look at this uh, definition of anti-Semitism, we need to see it in its bigger context. And the bigger context isn't uh, some, um, how should you put it, um, you know, raging infection of uh, anti-Semitism ripping through the body politic, let alone the labor movement in Britain. What this all stands for is Britain's alliance with the United States and with the United States' most important ally uh, in the Middle East, uh, Israel. That's really what all this is about. Uh, and it really stems from the bruising, the battering uh, that the establishment, um, you know, um, experienced uh, over the Iraq war in the run up to the Iraq war and the aftermath uh, of the Iraq war. And of course, um, Afghanistan uh, cannot be left out uh, of that either. But it's clearly the Iraq war uh, that shook um, their confidence. And it's really been an attempt uh, to restore uh, their position. Either way, uh, if we look at Caroline Lucas, she'd been agitating uh, for the Green Party to adopt this uh, working definition. And I've heard all the arguments that this is a non-definition and I can go uh, with that. It's a bogus definition. It's, <laughs> it's not only a wrong definition, but the giveaway uh, uh, in it is of course, all the examples that it uses. You cannot say, for example, uh, that Israel is a racist project. You cannot distinguish Israel uh, from other countries. Um, well, well, we would. Why? Uh, because it's one of the few examples of an ongoing colonial project. Um, most of the native peoples in terms of colonial projects uh, have been defeated. And we're talking about work uh, colonies, right? So in terms of Australia, uh, the United States, South America, the indigenous people have been either exterminated or marginalized. Uh, that isn't true yet uh, with the Palestinians. But showing the battle that she had, um, what's worthwhile noting is that alongside uh, the IHRA working definition of uh, anti uh, Semitism, they actually adopted four other definitions of uh, anti-Semitism, including uh, the Jerusalem uh, Declaration. Now, you might be uh, of the view that it's a bit like swatting a fly, that you swatted a fly using a newspaper and you can't get the damn bugger. Um, so what you do is you put up a piece of sticky paper and the, the damn thing still doesn't land on the sticky paper and it's still buzzing around. So this, this damn fly is such a nuisance. Then you get in the pesticide and you've blasted into the air. So prevalent uh, is anti-Semitism. But no, clearly uh, this was a rotten compromise um, um, that the conference agreed. Um, 
in other words, what the Green Party uh, is left with is uh, political incoherence. Nonetheless, what this vote uh, for the working definition uh, signals is that the Green Party is in the business of being taken seriously as a potential partner in government, which given the ongoing climate crisis, shouldn't be easily dismissed. Um, you know, it's not inconceivable uh, that the Green Party in the midst of uh, Boris Johnson's travails and uh, um, sort of chaos uh, in the Labour Party, let alone uh, with the climate emergency, could actually benefit. I know we uh, live in Britain in a first-past-the-post system, so it's not the same as in Europe. Nonetheless, that to me uh, is what this vote uh, signals, that the Green Party is in the business of being taken seriously as a potential coalition partner, and you can trust us uh, because we've been prepared to sign up uh, to this um, uh, definition. Okay, just lastly, and I'm going to finish on this one. What's the time? Yeah, I'll finish on this one and I'll be very quick because I've gone on for nearly an hour now and that's quite enough. I just wanted to pick up the interesting arguments and put them in a package of this week's uh, letters um, in the weekly work. I won't deal with uh, poor old Jerry Downing and Lawrence Parker. I'll just put that one aside. <laughs> if I can. Instead, I'll deal with the contributions of Gil Schaefer and uh, Jim Moody and Tony Greenstein. And I said, I'll put them in a package and call it the party question. I won't deal with everything that Gil is arguing. Suffice to say, I do not accept the idea myself uh, that you put simply an equal sign uh, between Marxism and democracy. Now, it's true uh, that um, in Marx's early career uh, as a political thinker, a political activist, uh, you would describe him as an extreme a Democrat. That's certainly true. But it's also worth noting uh, that he goes from extreme democracy to what we would now call Marxism, um, and in other words, to communism, right? He actually makes that shift. And we're talking, I don't know what date, 1843, something um, along those lines. I would also argue that he's being influenced in that by what's going on in France, uh, because you have um, communist uh, ideas in France and having rejected initially uh, the idea of communism, you can read that in his uh, writings, he comes around to communism. And I also think he's He's making that shift uh, also in conditions of where the Chartist movement, the Chartist party in Britain is dividing. And it's dividing between what is sometimes called the moral force wing of Chartism, uh, which is the charter and the idea of persuading uh, parliament. And we're talking about both houses of parliament uh, to adopt universal male uh, suffrage. Um, and we're dealing then with what is sometimes called the physical force wing uh, of Chartism, which didn't just uh, envisage the possibility of uh, an armed uprising, uh, but also stood by what it called the Charter Plus 
right? In other words, the um, the charter, i.e., from the name, uh, that's what you know. The petition, that's what they collected all those uh, signatures uh, on. But plus the social, plus the liberation um, of uh, the working class, and of course Marx moves to a position um, unlike many French communists um, who envisage some sort of um, benign dictatorship by the enlightened few that liberates uh, the working class. Marx comes round to the view uh, that the working class has to liberate itself. Uh, and that was a, a radical, radical uh, uh, idea. And in the process of liberating itself, it liberates uh, humanity. Uh, it has no interest uh, in oppressing anyone if it isn't if everyone isn't free, the working class uh, isn't free. But also I want to differ uh, with comrade uh, uh, Schaefer also on his argument about strategy and tactics. Now, I, I don't speak Russian, um, but it's clear that in Russian and someone who does speak Russian here will tell me I'm right. I know I'm right. <laughs> that in Russian, there is a difference between the word strategy and the word tactic. That's clearly the case. Why Lenin in 1905 entitles his book or his pamphlet, Two Tactics of Social Democracy in the Democratic Revolution, I don't know. Maybe, you know, someone like Lars can uh, uh, enlighten me, Lars T. Lee, maybe they can enlighten me. I don't know. Maybe this is just me guessing. It's because what we're dealing with is two factions at the time of the RSDLP, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. Um, who are united in agreement around uh, the program that was agreed at the Second Congress uh, of the RSDLP, which was held in Brussels and then uh, London. So they're both united around this single program. And maybe Lenin was writing uh, to say, well, I merely have a tactical difference. I don't know. But if you read the term pamphlet, it's clear to me uh, that what we're dealing with is a strategic difference uh, between uh, the majority of the Mensheviks and the Bolshevik faction. And the difference is, to put it crudely, is that the Bolsheviks stand for the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry. Uh, and they stand for entering a provisional government um, of these two classes, which would be embodied uh, in some sort of party coalition. So the Bolsheviks, the, the, the Social Democrats for the workers, and some sort of peasant party uh, for the peasantry. That's what they envisaged. And that this provisional government uh, carries out the revolution in Russia uh, using the most revolutionary methods, um, objective circumstances permit. And this would be something that would be carried out um, according to and under conditions uh, of where the European socialist revolution uh, is breaking out. And uh, they envisage the possibility of conducting revolutionary war um, in Europe along the lines of um, the French Revolution um, and the French army um, marching uh, to the east. Um, the RSDLP, at least Lenin, envisaged potentially uh, marching uh, to the West. Well, that was in contrast 
to the Menshevik wing, which admitted that maybe uh, the workers would have to play the leading role in what both factions agreed was going to be a bourgeois revolution. That, that, that name indicates material limits uh, to what the revolution could do. But uh, if the working class did play the leading role, what the Mensheviks then envisage is not participating, which is an irony given what happens in 1917, not participating uh, in a provisional government of um, uh, actually saying, well, this is a bourgeois revolution, although the workers have led this revolution, power must go uh, to the bourgeoisie and maybe it governs uh, in alliance with the peasantry, which is fundamentally, uh, at least, well, we can get into an argument. They could, you could argue it's a bourgeois class and there'll be good reasons for that to be the case right, if you're a landowner. Either way, we're dealing with a strategic difference. And certainly if you read um, Stalin, as I have, and his foundations of Leninism, um, not just the first edition, but the second edition that everyone knows, uh, what you have is a little chapter uh, in that pamphlet called Strategy and Tactics. It's clear that in Russian, the two mean two different things. Tactics are infinitely variable. That's what Stalin stresses. So what the hell Lenin was doing using this word tactics in 1905 in a strategic way? I don't know. I've, I've made my guess. Either way, um, what we would be arguing in the CPGB is that uh, we are for party unity around a program and the strategy of that program. Uh, we are not uh, we are not advocates of um, splits on the basis of tactics. Tactics are about what demonstration you go on, what slogans you raise on a demonstration. Uh, they aren't about class alignments and going into government and carrying out revolutionary war. That's not a tactical question. Uh, that's a strategic vision um, of world uh, revolution. So I differ. Uh, with Comrade Gill on that question. Now, Mike McNair will be speaking next week and he can um, elaborate on his particular take on this question. Just finally on Comrade uh, Schaefer, I don't know where he gets the idea from that we in the CPGB uh, discover the idea of democracy in 1995. That's a bit of a mystery to me and I wait enlightenment on that question. Just with Comrade Jim Moody, uh, the Labour Party is now a thoroughly, thoroughly going bourgeois party. Well, politically, um, it's always been bourgeois, right? Um, I mean, if you look at the debates in the Second International um, around its affiliation, um, Lenin in particular is clear on that question. Kortsky is less clear, but Lenin is certainly clear on that question, that if you look at the ILP, if you look at these people, he says with a sneer, they're just dreadful. I mean, dreadful. Um, that's the reality of them. I mean, I was reminded today uh, that if you look at the history of the Labour Party, uh, in 1906, uh, the Labour Party uh, does a deal with the Liberals, and it's a you stand, we stand down type deal. So the Liberals would stand down in some seats. And basically the deal was, which carries on into the first Labour government, after World War One, is you, we, we follow your line uh, when it comes to foreign policy. 
Um, so we'll preserve the British Empire. And indeed, if you look at the first Labour government, from my memory, is you had a liberal in charge, not only of foreign policy, uh, I, um, the empire, uh, but also in charge of the fleet, um, Britain's main uh, armed uh, wing. Either way, uh, the Labour Party in 1916, true without Ramsay MacDonald, joins uh, the war uh, cabinet and uh, clearly uh, pins its flag uh, to the imperialist mast. Um, so when's the change? You know, when did it become uh, a bourgeois party in that sense? Or should we ask it the other way round? Uh, and that is, when did it cease being a bourgeois workers' party? And for me, well, however bureaucratized the trade unions are, would we actually want to give up at the present time fighting in the trade unions? Um, it's true that if we look at the politics of trade unions, trade unionism as trade unionism, they are bourgeois politics. It's about selling the commodity labor power, right? But we would argue that potentially trade unions have the possibility of becoming schools for communism. Certainly where we are now, uh, I would argue that anyone who says trade unions are a waste of time, um, well, I think they've more or less then given up on the struggle uh, for socialism. And therefore, the question arises, if communists are successful, and I know that's a big if, uh, but if we were successful um, and we gained uh, a mass base and we took over the leadership of Unison, Unite, GMB, wouldn't we use, wouldn't we use that influence, the, the, those votes, those positions on the Labour Party, NEC, for our purposes? Uh, to, to me, you ask the question and you have the answer in the same way or in a similar way, I put it less uh, strongly, in a similar way. There exists the House of Commons. Uh, would you give up on um, standing in elections? I'd simply say, well, no, you don't. That doesn't mean I've got any illusions. And I'll simply finish on this one um, when it comes to the Labour Party. I've never been of the view that the Labour Party can be reformed, i.e. all you need to do is have a conference vote, capture X number of different uh, positions, even uh, capture the position of leader, and there you have an instrument of socialism in your hands. Uh, I, I don't believe that. I only believe uh, that the Labour Party can be transformed into what we've been talking about, a united front of a special kind, i.e. like Soviets, that's different, but nonetheless related uh, um, sort of category, only under conditions of where there's a revolutionary party uh, that is hegemonic. Uh, in other words, comrades like Graham, uh, Graham Bash, uh, who think uh, or did think uh, that the Labour Party was reformable, uh, I think are profoundly mistaken. The key question, which is what Jim Moody agrees with us on, and he's quite right, the key question uh, is the Communist Party. And uh, Lenin uh, used the analogy of grasping the main contradiction um, um, before us with both hands. And to me, uh, the main question that faces us historically, uh, that we ain't going to make progress unless we grasp and solve the party question. Without that, um, 
uh, we have wasted energy and disappointment. And that brings me on to Tony Greenstein. And Tony Greenstein says, well, you've been trying for 30 years. Well, people have been struggling for socialism for a lot longer than 30 years. Should we give up on the struggle for socialism because we haven't succeeded? To me, well, maybe you should because it hasn't worked so far. Or to the extent that it's worked, it's failed. It's turned into an abomination, hasn't it? I mean, look at Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union uh, in the 1920s, let alone the 1930s, uh, or these peculiar social formations that we see, such as Camp Pechia and um, China, uh, North Korea, um, you know, Eastern Europe. I mean, whatever you call them, um, they aren't socialism, i.e. the transition to communism, at least in, in my view, um, they are something else. Either way, uh, that resulted in failure. Should we give up? Uh, to me, no. Uh, what we need is a party. And what I would argue is the nearest we've ever got uh, to the working class coming to power uh, was during uh, the last years of World War One. Obviously, I'm thinking of the October Revolution, November 1917, uh, but also Germany, Austria, the potentiality of the working class coming to power throughout Europe. What they had in Russia uh, was a mass party, a trained mass party united around an agreed program, united around a common strategy. Uh, that was first mapped out, yes, in the pamphlet, two tactics, two strategies would be a better title for it. And what Tony Greenstein is proposing is a socialist movement. Well, what I would argue on that one uh, is that this is a new idea that's being tried uh, and failed. And the difference is that its failure was inevitable. Uh, because if we look at the Socialist Alliance, we look at respect, if we look at the Socialist Labour Party, uh, the list, you know, goes from those attempts to quite frankly ridiculous, uh, um, um, you know, um, mini uh, attempts. The first serious political challenge you have if you don't form a party on a principled programmatic basis is you split and split and split again. And um, quite frankly, uh, it turns into uh, a, a process of demoralization uh, of socialists, not preserving socialists, not educating socialists, uh, but uh, actually wasting socialist energy. So I think that in terms of um, Comrade Greenstein's project, we wish him well. Uh, we don't think that this is a serious uh, project that he's embarked on. I mean, one of the ideas uh, in terms of program that is being talked about in these circles is um, to adopt the Labour Party's um, 2019 election manifesto, which is not even a reformed capitalism. I mean, it's not a capitalism that's going towards socialism. It's a nice uh, capitalism and it's nationalist. And it couldn't work because the United States remains the world hegemonic force and wouldn't allow it to work. And unless you can actually work out a strategy that says this is how we can actually win in the real world, um, then what you're doing 
is fostering illusions. And the illusion is uh, that somehow this project will unite 150,000 ex uh, Labour Party members who presumably joined um, in order to support uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, we consider that illusory. Um, comrades are very welcome uh, to fight for that, uh, but we don't consider it a serious project. We would join it if we thought it had partyist uh, potential. So we joined with enthusiasm, for example, the Socialist Alliance, full of criticisms, such as, for example, it didn't take the Labour Party seriously. <laughs> they didn't, they refused to, um, didn't take programme seriously. Uh, you know, we've been involved in these things and we've been involved with them uh, uh, with the project of a communist party in mind. Uh, when we look at uh, the idea of forming a unity around um, uh, the Corbyn manifesto, if I can use that term from 2019, this isn't the basis for socialist unity. Um, this is actually tailism uh, of people that aren't leading um, anywhere. Um, and it's a recipe actually uh, for dissipation and not organization of the forces of um, socialism. So I'll finish with that. Thanks, Stan.